Canada was not always the relatively united country that it is today. Before 1867, there were many different British colonies in North America outside the United States called, imaginatively, British North America. They were all independently governed with the overarching authority of Great Britain, and the sheer distance between some of the colonies made coming together in one dominion a questionable endeavor for many. However, in 1867, four of the colonies made the decision to join together and form the Dominion of Canada. What exactly made these four colonies make this fateful decision to join together as one entity? The reason varied for each, but for one of the colonies, the main reason was, of course, protection from invasion by Irish separatists. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is what? Explain. Okay, this will involve a fair amount of context, so bear with me as we go back to the 1700s. Ireland at the end of the 18th century did have their own government separate from Great Britain, including their own parliament and monarch. However, the fact Great Britain could pass laws binding to the government of Ireland and maintain absolute overview of any court cases ruled on in Ireland meant that in reality, Ireland had less control over their affairs than Great Britain's actual colonies. Also fanning the flames of discontent was that only Anglicans, descended from the Church of England, were allowed to be members of Parliament in Ireland at the time. Presbyterians and Roman Catholics that made up the majority of the population within Ireland at the time were not. In fact, Catholics were not even allowed to vote in Ireland until 1793, unless the Catholic owned or rented land worth more than two pounds annually. It is also worth mentioning that this was all regarding men. Women just weren't allowed to vote regardless of religious background. So, you have power consolidated within a religious minority with ties to Great Britain, a government that which allowed Great Britain veto power on any law or court ruling in Ireland, and commercial restrictions that allowed Britain to profit at Ireland's expense. To sum up, you had a frustrated country with a new sense of separation and identity who were inspired by both the American Revolution in 1776, which proved that a nation could overthrow the British and the French Revolution in 1789, which proved that a people could overthrow their own monarch. Led by Presbyterians who were angry that they were shut out of power by the Anglican establishment in Ireland, and joined by Catholics who made up the majority of the population within Ireland at the time, the Irish Rebellion began on May 24, 1798. The rebels' initial plan was to take over Dublin, the capital and largest city in Ireland, and thus encouraging the counties around Dublin to rise up, effectively taking away the main power structure of the British in Ireland. Despite the initial success of capturing Dublin, all attempts by the rebels to expand further resulted in defeat by Irish loyalists to the British crown and British soldiers sent to quash the rebellion. By July, the vast majority of the fighting was over, with the rebels being defeated and the leadership being arrested and executed over the next couple of years. The main result of this rebellion was that the British made an offer to Irish Catholics, promising them emancipation if they voted to merge the British and Irish parliaments into one parliament of the United Kingdoms. Given that actual rebellion had brought them nothing but defeat, the Catholics agreed, and the parallel Acts of Union 1800 were passed in both the Parliament of Great Britain and Parliament of Ireland. The Acts came into force on January 1st, 1801, and the United Kingdoms were born. So, what did the Irish Catholics get for supporting this new United Kingdom's Parliament? For 28 years after? Absolutely nothing. 
It was only through a near insurrection in 1829, led by Irish lawyer Daniel O'Connor winning an election, but not being able to sit in Parliament due to him being a Catholic, that the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829 was passed, allowing for Catholics to sit in the Irish Parliament. Even that bill made absolutely nobody happy. The British House of Lords and King George IV, the British monarch at the time, were worried that giving Catholics the ability to sit in Parliament would lead to Ireland trying to splinter off again. The British Prime Minister at the time had to threaten to resign in order to get approval for this bill to pass, concluding that, quote, while Catholic emancipation was a great danger, civil strife was a greater danger. On the other side, the Irish Catholics were unhappy, as the bill raised the amount of land needed to be rented by Catholics to vote from two pounds worth to ten pounds worth. It was the equivalent at the time of saying, okay, your rent needed to be $1,000 previously in order to vote? Well, now it has to be 5000 and you'll just have to deal with it. While this act did allow Catholics to sit in Parliament, it also disenfranchised many of the 40-shilling freeholders. These were the people who had the right to vote only by the two pounds worth of land that they rented, the vast majority of whom were, you guessed it, Catholic. The Irish Catholics felt taken advantage of by the British, with many of them having even fewer rights than they did previously. Daniel O'Connor, the lone Irish Catholic member of Parliament at the time, and the reason the Roman Catholic Relief Act was passed, tried using his newfound status to leverage public opinion towards repealing the Acts of Union, making Ireland a separate country again. O'Connor used massive public meetings and petitions in order to show that there was significant support in Ireland for independence. Unfortunately for O'Connor, the British were much more invested in keeping the Union than they were about public opinion, so the Union stayed. Another flashpoint of tension between Ireland and Britain occurred when the Great Famine of the 1840s hit Ireland. The majority of the landowners in Ireland lived in Britain, so when Irish freeholders had to pay their rent, it went into British pockets. Additionally, much of the food and grain grown in Ireland ended up being transported to Britain as they were, quote, United Kingdoms, leaving the Irish freeholders to subsist on what was remaining, which tended to be potato, as it could be grown in pretty much any type of soil. When a massive potato blight hit Ireland in 1845, the effects were devastating. Their once staple food had been eradicated, and as a result, over one million people died from starvation, and two million emigrated out of Ireland in order to escape from the effects of the blight. Many of the younger members of the repeal movement started by O'Connor, fed up with the lack of results that the petitions and meetings were having, and galvanized by their friends and countrymen starving in the streets, attempted an armed rebellion in 1848. This was quickly put down by the British, partially due to the lack of organization on the rebels' parts, and partially because the rebels had been skin and bones due to lacking proper nutrition for the past three years. Those rebels who could flee the country ended up doing so, and two of them, James Stevens and John O'Mahony, ended up in Paris in 1848, where they hid to avoid arrest. But the dream of Irish independence didn't go away for them. Once they had raised enough money to move out of Paris, O'Mahony went to the United States in 1856 and founded an organization called the Fenian Brotherhood in 1858, named after the Fianna Eiron, the ancient Irish warriors. Stevens went back to Dublin and founded the Irish counterpart to the Fenians, called the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Many of the Irish who emigrated due to the famine found their way to the United States, so O'Mahony had a very willing audience to talk about his dreams of an Ireland free of the yoke of the British. 
Hundreds of thousands of Irish immigrants to the United States bought bonds for $10 and $20 that would be redeemed six months after the recognition of the independence of Ireland. With that funding, the Fenian Brotherhood were able to put a plan into action in 1866 that was the exact definition of high-risk, high-reward. They were going to get Irish independence at any cost, even if it involved taking over a British colony on their own, New Brunswick. The Fenians were able to get a large number of arms and willing volunteers from Irish immigrants who fought in the Union Army in the American Civil War that wanted to strike back at the British, and now had the training and battlefield experience to do so. The United States government at the time was not indisposed to the idea of the Irish raiding Canada to strike a blow to Britain, as the British did not aid the Union during the Civil War. The United States didn't overtly support the Fenians, but there were a couple coincidences that makes it apparent that at the very least, the United States favored the Fenians getting the results that they wanted. Large purchases of armaments by the Fenians went conveniently uninvestigated for a significant amount of time, and the Fenians were not subtle about their intentions. Additionally, T.W. Sweeney, a Union general who was the organizing mind behind the Fenian raids, was coincidentally struck off the U.S. Army roster from January to November of 1866, allowing him to concentrate on the planning. The goal of the raids wasn't to take over the entirety of British North America, which would have been impossible, even at the time. The goal was to use the size of the territory against the British, capturing certain strategic transportation hubs, and hold them hostage until Britain granted sovereignty to Ireland. The issue was that the Fenians were openly preparing for these raids, including buying large amounts of weapons and massing people along the American border. This worried both British and Canadian officials, who instructed their spies planted among Confederate sympathizers in the northern United States to shift their focus to the Fenian threat. As a result, when the Fenians first moved to get a foothold on Campobello Island, an island owned by the British off of New Brunswick, the British had readied warships from nearby Halifax and repelled the Fenians. While this was just the opening volley of the Fenian raids, it had a lasting effect in convincing the province of New Brunswick that actually joining with Canada West, now Ontario, Canada East, now Quebec, and Nova Scotia in confederation to form the Dominion of Canada was a good idea. The threat of Fenian invasion was enough to drive New Brunswick into confederation, creating the precursor to modern-day Canada but the Fenians weren't quite done yet. On June 1st, 1866, 1,000 Fenian soldiers crossed the Niagara River from Buffalo, New York, led by John O'Neill, a former U.S. cavalry officer. They managed to capture the town of Fort Erie in what is now Ontario and started to hunker down. They arrested and imprisoned the town council and border officials, cut the outgoing telegraph lines to stop people from informing the British of the situation, and seized horses and tools, which they began using to build fortifications to repel counterattacks. However, a town doesn't fall off the face of the earth without being noticed, even back in the 19th century, and the British knew something was amiss. They managed to rally over 20,000 militia volunteers to respond to the Fenian invasion, which helped bolster the British infantry units that were stationed nearby. The Canadian volunteers were sent to the area around Fort Erie within half a day of the Fenians taking over. But the problem was that they were unprepared for combat, to the extent that only half of them had fired a rifle with live ammunition before. When faced with the well-armed and well-supplied Fenians, the majority of whom had been veterans of the American Civil War, 
they didn't stand a chance. However, the British and Canadian soldiers began arriving soon after, driving the Fenians first back to Fort Erie, then back over the border to the United States. O'Neill and his troops were arrested once they got back over the border, as the United States had begun to worry that this invasion would affect relations with the British, and were no longer confident in a speedy Fenian victory. O'Neill was paroled within a year and was considered a hero to the Fenians after the Battle of Ridgeway, as the Fenian invasion was called. The Fenian forces tried a few more times to get across the border to capture strategic locations in what is now Quebec, but were speedily repelled each time. The last official Fenian invasion happened in October of 1871, when O'Neill and his remaining troops crossed into Manitoba, hoping to get support from Louis Riel, another leader who had led resistance movements against the government of Canada. Unfortunately, O'Neill made a grave miscalculation, and instead of supporting him, Riel raised some volunteer soldiers to repel the Fenians, and for the final time, O'Neill had to retreat across the American border, ending the Fenian threat in Canada. Despite the Fenians not achieving their goal of Irish independence from their raids, the effects of their actions still have weight today. After the Campobello Island raid was repelled by British soldiers, New Brunswick came around to the benefits of Confederation, making a new dominion that would be the precursor to modern-day Canada. Additionally, the ease in which the Fenians were able to go through the Canadian volunteers showed that relying on the British for defense was no longer a viable option, especially with the United States increasing in economic and military power, so the Canadians began training standing militias on their own. This armed force would be instrumental in Canadian efforts in the First World War almost half a century later, where Canadian soldiers were involved in many pivotal battles, such as the battles of Passchendaele, the Somme, and Vimy Ridge. The push for Irish independence did not stop with the Fenian forces being repelled from Canada either. Britain attempting to push conscription during World War I into Ireland resulted in the Irish War of Independence, a guerrilla war that ended with the creation of a Republic of Ireland in 1920, separate from Britain. Northern Ireland, who had many Unionists, or people who were okay with being a part of Great Britain, opted to stay within the United Kingdoms, which resulted in further tension and escalating casualties in an Irish civil war, which carried on from 1920 to 1922. The existence of Northern Ireland as a part of the British Empire angered many Irish nationalists, who thought that it was a gerrymandered state that was designed to have the majority of the voters wanting to stay within the United Kingdoms. This state of affairs created tension and low-level conflicts throughout the two segments of Ireland that only concluded with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. To me, it is interesting just how little is known about this piece of history in Canada. Cards on the table, I had no idea about it until a year ago myself, but it seems a large omission. The fact that there was an attempt at an invasion of Canada to try and gain Irish independence is a big thing, and yet not really mentioned nowadays. At the very least, if we're willing to claim that we burned down the White House in 1812, fun story, it was actually the British using Canada as a staging ground, but I digress. I'm sure that's another episode later. We should probably know the flip side of, we were nearly taken hostage by Irish separatists as well. I'm Braden Thorvaldson. And I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch, who helps me sound like I'm not simultaneously chugging water and narrating. If you want to be up to date with all things podcast related, why not follow us on Instagram at whatexplainpod, 
and on our Facebook page as What Explain Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. It does help push us to the top of some algorithms, making sure more people can hear the podcast. Word of mouth is also immensely helpful. So if you have a friend, family member, or local dog walker that you think might like the show, please let them know. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all in a couple weeks. Bye.